felt like a partial American, or a kind of fraudulent American, and finally not American at all. I just felt like a black person. When this Nobel Prize was given to me, I felt American probably for the first time. These are not the words one would expect to hear from an author who was regarded as America's national writer, or as she is sometimes more patriotically referred to, the first lady of literature. But Toni Morrison wasn't just a renowned American author. She was a world-renowned African-American female author. With a writing career spanning half a century, Morrison wrote at least 13 books, received a Pulitzer Prize for fiction, and was the first African-American recipient of the Nobel Prize for Literature. However, her role as a novelist was but one of the myriad springy coils that formed the luscious, bushy afro of her life. So what else did she do? I think the question should be, what didn't she do? As essayist, book editor, Ivy League college professor, civil rights activist, Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient, and single mother are but a few of the many other lives she led. From this seemingly inexorable list of accolades, it is clear that Toni Morrison was not only instrumental in the advancement of literature, but also in the reshaping of the landscape of life as we know it today. Yet, in 1931, nobody would have guessed that a little black girl born in the attic of a white wooden house in Lorraine, Ohio, would eventually become such an influential literary figure. The second of four children, Chloe Ardelia Wooford, as Morrison was originally named, grew up in a poor working-class family with nothing to her name. Her father, George Wooford, had moved to Ohio when he was only 15 to start afresh in a more racially integrated city after witnessing the lynching of two black men in his southern hometown of Cartersville, Georgia. Looking back, Morrison noted how this particular experience was traumatic for her father and was one of the primary factors behind her utter detestation of white people or, as Morrison has more blatantly put it, his big-time racism. She often recalled with drollery the insurance guy having to stand outside the front door because Mr Wooford prohibited white people from entering his home. And, on a more solemn note, she also talked about the time she watched by as he shoved a white man down the steps of the local bank. Interestingly, though, Morrison claimed that this violent act was evidence of her father's ability to protect her. And for me, this attitude is redolent of the juxtaposition between familial love and social morality, a theme that is central to many of her novels, as we see most notably in The Bluest Eye and Beloved. But going back to Morrison's early life, it is clear from several of her interviews that her family had a profound impact during her childhood, which subsequently affected how she grew up as an adult and a writer. The Woofords were impoverished, to say the least, but they faced all of their misfortunes with a rather tongue-in-cheek attitude, opting for perseverance and unity instead of any hints of despair. For example, Morrison had recounted how the family ended up laughing at a landlord burning down their house, and they also later took great pleasure in tearing down any paper eviction notices plastered onto the front of their doors. However, there is only so much a metaphorical glass half-full can do before one is in need of actually quenching their thirst. 
and the Woofords continued to suffer through the hardships of their destitution, regardless of their facetiousness. But their luck unexpectedly began to change in the 1940s, when the Second World War hit, as George Wooford was too old to be conscripted and so became a welder in a shipyard, a highly skilled job that actually paid much better than any of his previous employment, allowing him to finally provide for the rest of the family and secure a home. And now, there's a little anecdote I want to share that Morrison told in an interview with her close friend, who is also a writer, Hilton Owls, in which she talks about her father and his new job. So one day, George Wooford came home and was absolutely raving about how he had perfectly welded a seam on a ship at work. In fact, he claimed that his craftsmanship was so flawless that he actually somehow managed to fuse his initials, GW, underneath it. At the time, as a young girl, Morrison was rather flippant about this. Her immediate response was, nobody's going to see that. Wooford conceded, saying he knew that was true. But for him, it was still significant because he himself knew it was there. The work he had done that day was very personal to him. Inscribing his initials in almost a covert way, like a young child secretly scratching their existence into a school desk, was such an intimate moment that nobody else could have understood. Morrison had later labelled this as Wooford's own sense of self-approval, and she said that this value of that satisfaction of one's own actions was very important to her. And I think that we see this later on in her life and in relation to her writing, because she was going to face not only a lot of criticism, but also an almost overbearing burden of praise when it came to her novels. And so having such a staunch belief in her own work was going to really help her face this. Despite the Woofords' newfound fortune, Morrison's father actually secured her a job as a domestic when she was just 12 years old. This entailed going over to a white woman's house every day after school and making everything spick and span. Similar to how I think the majority of 12-year-old girls would react to this, Morrison absolutely despised her job. In fact, one day she came back home after work and kicked up an absolute stink about how this white woman had been rather cruel to her because Morrison didn't have a clue about what she was doing, having never seen a washing machine or a vacuum cleaner in her life. She clearly wasn't in the right trade. Thank goodness she found writing later on. But what really makes this little anecdote is her father's response to the situation. He listened to her complaining and said, Go to work, get your money, and come on home. You don't live there. And so that's what she did, continuing to get her $2 a week, half of which she would spend on candy. I think that this really impacted Morrison's life, because it taught her the importance of maintaining integrity and conscientiousness in spite of any obstacles, which is not only a theme in many of her novels, but also something she had to uphold in a world that was constantly pushing against her as a black woman in a white man's sphere. Aside from encouraging her to physically work and partake in this sort of manual labour, Morrison's family also exhorted her to mentally work and get as educated as possible. Their reasoning behind this was that they had grown up in a world that barred them from gaining such knowledge. Morrison's maternal grandparents grew up in the South during the early 19th century era of slavery. 
At this time, anti-literacy laws were established and affected all people of colour. The laws arose from the concerns that literate slaves could forge the documents required to escape to free states, and also from fears of slave insurrection, as abolitionists at the time were publishing appeals that advocated for rebellion. Therefore, the southern states prohibited teaching black people to read and write, which was punishable by hefty fines, whippings, and imprisonment for as long as six months. This law applied to white people as well, who could go to jail for teaching black people to read or write. As a result of this, there was a history of illiteracy within African-American culture that also plagued Morrison's family. So, as someone who actually had the freedom and the access to literacy, Morrison was essentially forced to take advantage of basic reading and writing, because to them, it was seen as a revolutionary act against the oppression they had faced. However, as an avid reader, Morrison blithely became a rebel. She was the first child amongst all black and white children in her class at school that was able to read. She practically lived at Lorraine's only library, reading all of literature's classics from Jane Austen to Leo Tolstoy. In fact, her second job as a teenager was shelving books at that same library, although she didn't get very far in that career either, as a title would catch her eye, she'd crack the book open for a quick look, and pretty soon she'd forget about the stack of returns. Morrison was impressed by the way in which these masters of literature were so specific and detailed in their portrayal of things that they were habitually familiar with. Clearly, reading such novels helped her to develop her own style of writing, which is riddled with intricate descriptions and nuances. However, the content of her writing was not acquired through reading so much, but rather via listening and an oral tradition. Storytelling was an important part of life in the Wooford family, and she incorporated many of the stories and experiences from her grandparents, parents and siblings in her novels later on, such as the older generation's memories of slavery, which helped form the backdrop of her Pulitzer Prize-winning novel Beloved. Furthermore, her mother, who Morrison claimed had the best voice she had ever heard in her life, often told her stories about the past through singing, and this could explain the lyricism and poetic nature of Morrison's writing, as well as her interest in black music, which she explores in her boisterous novel Jazz. She also retrieved a lot of subject matter from the African-American folklore, ghost stories, rituals and myths that filled her childhood. Her family frequently used visions and signs to predict the future, and Morrison said that they were intimate with the supernatural which is another theme prevalent in many of her novels. So it is also clear that the Woofords instilled a rich sense of African-American heritage that not only enveloped Morrison's writing, but also helped her identity to flourish. But Morrison's sense of African-American identity really began to thrive when she found the company and community of fellow black intellectuals who were similar to her when she enrolled at Howard University in 1949 an institution which was considered to be the most prestigious of all the black universities at the time. It was here that she became known as Tony, after her Catholic baptismal name, Anthony, because people had difficulty pronouncing the name Chloe. And she also joined the Howard University Players, a theatre company that presented plays portraying the lives of black people. Now, this perspective was particularly significant living in a 1950s America, 
where racial segregation was still enforced and blacks and whites were separated in all facilities, services and opportunities, such as housing, medical care, education, employment and transportation, to name a few. When Morrison looked back at her time at university, in a period just before the civil rights movement began, she once said, If I saw a white man walking down the street and I was by myself, I'd cross the street. If I saw a black man, I would run toward him for safety. Morrison had also noted how the racism of the 1950s and the elevation of white skin equating to superiority formed an internalised racism within the black community. At Howard, she was exposed to this other kind of discrimination where people were ranked on the colour of their skin socially, so the lighter-skinned black people were held in higher regard than the darker-skinned people. And this was something she brought to light in the first novel she ever wrote, The Bluest Eye. So when Morrison graduated from Howard in 1953, along with her Bachelor of Arts degree in English, she also gained the lived experience and the personal contact with racism that she had never actually encountered before. Morrison then moved to New York to earn her MA from the Ivy League Cornell University in 1955. And after that, for the next decade or so, she actually remained at university, but now as a teacher of English rather than a student. She returned to Howard to teach, and this is where she met her husband, Harold Morrison, a Jamaican architect, whom she married in 1958, thus losing the Wooford maiden name for Morrison, a surname which, interestingly, she kept for the rest of her life, despite the couple's divorce in 1964, a mere six years after their marriage. Morrison was pregnant with her second child at the time of their divorce, but she had never actually publicly discussed her reasons for leaving her husband with anybody, although she hinted in the past that it was due to his wish for a more subservient wife. However, Morrison didn't see her divorce as a life-changing event. Instead, she said it was a time to start again and see what it is like to be a grown-up. And so she did exactly that. In 1965, Morrison started afresh and moved back to New York, but now as a single mother working as an editor in a textbook division of the publisher Random House in Syracuse. Two years later, she transferred to the main branch in New York City and became their first black female senior editor. She worked in the fiction department, conducting what she referred to as her own form of civil rights activism by bringing black literature into the mainstream. When asked about this time in her life, she said, I'm not out in the streets marching or giving speeches, so I want the voices documented. I don't want them distorted by this columnist or that one. I want them to say what they say. Morrison first brought out the voices of black writers through her contemporary African literature collection published in 1972, which included literary works by African writers such as Wale Soyinka and Chinua Achiba. She then worked with well-known public black figures on publishing their autobiographies, such as the radical activist Angela Davis and the professional boxing champion Muhammad Ali. Another particularly cutting-edge and innovational book that Morrison developed and edited was The Black Book, which was an anthology of photographs, illustrations, essays and other documents that highlighted the experience of black lives in the United States from the time of slavery to the 1920s. The book was described as the fruit of the civil rights movement, 
and was frequently referenced as an agent of black power. It is also significant to note that it was an article from this book that Morrison would later use as the basis of the plotline in her novel Beloved. Speaking of her novels, it is important to note that Morrison was constantly leading a complicated life of many different characters. While she was an editor by trade, she was also secretly a writer, as during her time at Random House, she had also joined an informal group of poets and writers back at Howard University who met to discuss their work. Morrison is often described as always having a pen and paper nearby to write things down, because she never knew when an idea or sentence of pure genius would strike. She would also wake up every day at the crack of dawn, or more specifically 4am, to write as much as possible before her two sons woke up. This was another character Morrison played, a single mother raising two sons. I always look back at this aspect of her life in complete and utter awe, unable to comprehend how one woman could balance so many different responsibilities. As Morrison grew older and looked back at this time in her life, she apparently felt the same way, as it wasn't until she actually completed all of this that she realised the difficulties she had faced in terms of how hectic her life was. Because at the time, she was so immersed in a different world and constantly focused on what was the next thing she had to do. At this point in Morrison's life, the next thing she felt she had to do was write. And so she did. In fact, she would continue to do this until she passed away half a century later. During the span of her writing career, Morrison wrote around 13 novels, but she also wrote countless other literary documents ranging from speeches to essays to literary criticisms. Unfortunately, we do not have the time to discuss all of these masterpieces in great deal today. Perhaps that is something to bear in mind and save for a potential mini-series, but I think it is important to note how the beautifully haunting nature of Beloved really placed Morrison on the map of truly life-changing literature. The novel which examines the destructive legacy of slavery on a mother who feels compelled to murder her own child was one of the primary reasons behind her winning of the Nobel Prize for Literature five years later in 1993. Notably, she was the first African-American woman to receive this prize, thus breaking boundaries and making history for the black community. Officially, she was awarded the prize for novels characterised by visionary force and poetic import giving life to an essential aspect of American reality. But I personally think that her acceptance speech was proof enough of her worthiness of the award. In her speech, she talked about the power of language and storytelling, using the metaphorical moral tale of a blind old black woman approached by a group of young people. She described how language has the power to illuminate and obscure, to liberate and oppress, to honour and besmirch, and to both express and be incapable of expressing the depth of human experience. Only a true author could have such profound understanding of the immense power he or she wields, and Morrison undisputedly recognises the responsibility of authorship, giving origin and existence to anything. Her ability to comprehend such complexities earned her the place of the Chair in Humanities at Princeton University from 1989 until her retirement in 2006. 
It was here through her teaching that she passed on her knowledge through the creative writing program and developed the Princeton Atelier, a program that brings together students with writers and performing artists to produce works of art to the public. Her invaluable work at Princeton was later recognised in 2017 when they dedicated a building in her honour which is now known as Morrison Hall. Another notable award Morrison received for her uniqueness and indispensability as an individual was the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2012, which is given to those who have made the world a better place. However, I think it is important to remember that Morrison never set out with the intention of changing our world. In fact, at first she often consciously avoided the public eye and made an effort to maintain a fierce sense of privacy. Morrison offered an explanation for her suspicion of the public sphere in terms of it being the mainstream, or what she calls the white. The publishing industry had, or one could even say has, as to an extent today it still does, either ignored black literature altogether or promoted it cautiously during brief periods of perceived public, or again white, interest. Therefore, by virtue of publishing her novels, a writer like Morrison would have been releasing her fiction into a sphere which had historically excluded or unevenly incorporated African Americans, and so Morrison viewed the word public itself as insolvent, incapable of containing the diversity of plural interests. So Morrison never wanted to include her literature in this world set out by a specific elite within society. Instead, she maintained a belief in the artist's ability to reimagine and create their own world. In a critical withdrawal from the toxicity of this public culture, Morrison's fiction strove to constitute itself as a sort of anti-literature, which was previously unavailable to the novelist and the reader, that directly addressed her own racial community and therefore a new sphere. Morrison envisioned her ideal audience as a pre-literate reader with no pre-existing sense of society, culture or writing. She would then use the vernacular language from her own heritage coupled with the oral tradition of African-American folklore to expose the reader to a new literary world forged from her black identity and experiences. Her novels were designed to remove black readers from the pernicious intensity of the white gaze so that they could have their own sense of value and worth rather than it constantly being relative to and therefore dependent on the white world. This meant that she was writing for black people, not the entire world. She once said, and I quote, It is that business of being universal, a word hopelessly stripped of meaning for me. If I tried to write a universal novel, it would be water. Behind this question is a suggestion that to write for black people is somehow to diminish the writing. From my perspective, there are only black people. When I say people, that's what I mean. Many white literary critics were taken aback by Morrison's attitude, arguing that her comments suggested an aversion to white readers. But it is clear that those people misunderstood Morrison's philosophy. Morrison was never excluding anybody. She wanted to carve out a world both culture-specific and race-free, that had the ability to include everyone, uniting both collective and individual experiences. This is how Morrison not only reshaped the landscape of literature, 
but also life. As someone who started writing because there was a book she wanted to read that did not yet exist, I always find it rather ironic that Morrison never usually read her own books. However, with the legacy her novels left behind, I think that there are more than enough readers of her literature today, so perhaps that is something I will let slide. Unfortunately, Morrison died at 88 from complications of pneumonia in 2019. But to me, it doesn't feel like she is truly gone. Whilst writing out various bits and pieces of this podcast, I often found myself referring to her in the present tense, as if she were still alive and raucously guffawing away with her incredible sense of humour. The reason behind this is that her words are so powerful that they live on and continue to impact our world today. She is on educational syllabi, so students of literature are constantly delving into and analysing her works and their significance. In fact, her inclusion in such academic curriculums represents the decolonization of literature and the Western literary canon, a concept which has become increasingly relevant over the years in a progressively post-colonial society, with the establishment of Black History Month in the UK during the 1980s, a period where Morrison's writing became particularly prolific, and also with the recent international Black Lives Matter movement earlier this year during which Morrison was celebrated as a public black figure who crucially realised the magnitude of the previously overlooked black experience. One of the most poignant moments in Morrison's Nobel Prize acceptance speech was the aphorism, We die. That may be the meaning of life. But we do language. That may be the measure of our lives. So if we are to measure Morrison's life on her use of language, it is undeniable that she is immutable, defying the constraints of space and time. She lives on through her writing. She is immeasurable. Hello, my name is Amy and I'm from Wakefield Lit Fest. I'm going to be talking to Jasmine about the process of writing her episode. So, Jasmine, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, thank you, Amy. Um, hello, my name is Jasmine Santa. I am an English and History undergraduate at the University of Birmingham. I really enjoyed listening to your episode. This was the first time that I ever heard of Toni Morrison. But when did you first hear about her? Yes, so um, the first time I ever heard about Toni Morrison was actually last year, surprisingly. It was very recent. Um, I actually undertook a study year abroad in America, and obviously Toni Morrison is an American writer, so um, her literature is really prolific there compared to... Well, obviously, it's prolific internationally, but in her in her own um, nation, it is obviously uh, a lot more prolific than it is elsewhere. And um, I I was on a study year abroad in America and I was studying literature uh, because that is part of my degree. And um, one of the modules that I did was uh, called Toni Morrison um, and how her literature has impacted the world. I think that was the title of it or something along those lines. Um, and I'd heard of Toni Morrison before. Um, I just never had read any of her works so this course was um I think it was a 
two or three month long uh, course and I really got to delve into her literature. I think I read five of her novels um, and we just, we literally did what the title said. We we discussed how her literature impacted the world and what it did for um, African-Americans and um, how she portrayed the black experience to those who had no clue what was going on as it is often something that had been overlooked. So yes, that was the first time I ever heard of her. So now I'm going to ask you a bit more about the process of recording the episode and writing the episode. So first of all, how did you decide to get involved? Um, so I actually first heard of this. I was scrolling through Facebook, as you do. It was raining outside. It was a horrible, dreary morning. And I was scrolling through Facebook and somebody had posted it in a society page. Um, I think it was the English Society at my university. Someone had posted that um, they were doing this podcast as part of the Wakefield Lit Fest. Um, so I looked into it. And I was immediately interested. I thought it was a great opportunity. I thought it was a fantastic idea. So thank you very much for setting this up, Amy. Um, and I thought that the I was I was really interested to see what other people uh, were going to be talking about as well, um, because the brief is obviously inspirational figures. And as part of my degree is in history, um, that's something I've always been interested in. So really looking into that um i was just immediately captivated and i wanted to get it in, I wanted to get involved as much as possible so i just applied um and yeah here we are was it always going to be tony morrison that you were writing about or did you consider other figures um that's a good question when i was thinking about who to do i knew immediately that i wanted it to be first of all a woman um, and second of all, um, a person of colour, because those two things are part of my identity. And I think that those people are most often overlooked in history. Um, so those are the, those were the two things that really came to mind at first. And then I was just thinking through, you know, wh- who has really inspired me? Who have I studied recently that's um, cropped up? And there were some other figures, I think, uh, we'd done some bits and pieces on Harriet Tubman, who um, was obviously really instrumental to the underground um, railway movement that was going on during the slavery era. Um, but then I was thinking as well, I do English and history. I want to kind of relate this history side to the lit- the other, the literature side of my course and straight away I just thought yes Toni Morrison that's it we're we're going to do it Um, and so yes I decided on her pretty quickly I think. Wonderful Um, so another question this is a bit more on the fun hypothetical side if you had the chance to collaborate with Toni Morrison would you take it and do you think you'd enjoy doing it? Oh my gosh Um, I think that would be a dream come true I would love to collaborate with Toni Morrison um, I think it would be very intimidating. She, she, don't get me wrong, she seemed like such an incredible person and she did have a really great sense of humour, um, which you can see through many of her interviews. But she's also 
you know, when it comes to writing, she's very serious about what she does. And I think that that would be very intimidating for me as a not very good creative writer. Um, so I think maybe there we would have some some difficulties, perhaps. But yeah, no, I would love to have been able to collaborate with her on on something in that respect. And I think that it would have been interesting to see um, perhaps like my perspective as a person um from with with indian heritage um and see how that compares to the black experience and the similarities and differences between that 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 could have been an interesting project that we hypothetically may have worked on so final question is there any other bits of your work that you'd like us to direct our listeners to Yes, so I do have some other work. In relation to this podcast, there will be a slightly extended version in the show notes, which just delves a little bit more into Toni Morrison's actual literature. So there's three of her novels that I explore in it, The Bluest Eye, Song of Solomon and Beloved. And I look at them in relation to how they've contributed to the black experience today. So in terms of my other work, um, I'm involved in a lot of journalism type things with the university and there's three main channels through which we do this. The first being, uh, which is most relevant to this podcast, the first is um, Burn FM Radio, which is our university radio station. And I actually host my own radio show on that, which explores um, a lot of things that are going on in popular culture um, and that is very relevant to Gen Z. Uh, the second thing I do uh, that I'm involved with is Guild TV. And on that, we produce just short videos about university life. And I'm actually currently um, involved with this project where we are exploring how university students are dealing uh, with the global pandemic and what the typical um, day in the life of a university student looks like right now. And the third one is the Red Brick newspaper, and I often just upload articles onto there. Most recently, I actually uploaded an article about my favourite black musician for Black History Month. Um, so that was Georgia Smith, and I just wrote a little bit about her. So yes, I'm, there's always stuff I'm trying to constantly upload onto the internet that hopefully you can find if you want to find out a little bit more. That sounds absolutely amazing. Um, thank you very much for coming and talking to me today. Thank you so much. So that's it from us. Um, thank you to our audience for listening to us talk about who came before. Today's episode of Who Came Before was written and performed by Jasmine Santar, with theme music by Bradman Mudd. It was edited and produced by Amy Winder for Wakefield Lit Fest, a literature festival funded by Arts Council England and IBE. To find out more, find us on Twitter at Wakey Lit Fest, on Instagram at Wakefield Lit Fest, or search for us on Facebook. Thank you again for listening.